Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the UI Breakfast Podcast. I'm your host, Jane Portman, and today our special guest is Emily Tate, U.S. General Manager of Mind the Product, a popular speaker and overall a wonderful product person. And today we're going to talk about defining and building new product features. Before we get started, I'd love to thank our amazing regular sponsor. This episode is brought to you by Balsamic. Dare to try new ideas and discover the best solutions without learning fancy design tools. Just drag, drop and resize elements into your wireframes. It's that easy. Try it free for three months at balsamic.cloud, entering the code UIBREAKFAST. Hi, Emily. Hello. Thank you so much for making the time for us today. We are thrilled. I'm excited to be here. <laughs> Wonderful. So before we get started on the topic, please tell us a bit what you do these days and how you got started in the product industry too. Yeah, so these days I am working for Mind the Product, which is the world's largest product management community. Um, I'm the U.S. General Manager, which essentially means I'm looking after the uh, offerings we have in the U.S., working with our local meetups that we call product tanks, um, helping with our larger conferences, and and doing a lot of training and and speaking around product management. Um, but I come to Mind the Product from about 12 years of product management experience. First in the travel industry, building software for airlines, um, moving into the consumer side of product management, building a mobile app for travelers called Tripcase, and eventually moving into consulting, where I spent a couple years with Pivotal, building the uh, Pivotal Labs practice in Dallas. Wonderful. So these days, you're mostly speaking and teaching other people to do uh, rational, wonderful product management. <laughs> That, that sounds right. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. So that it means that you have so much to, to say on the topic today that I hope we will be able to do that in half an hour. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, we had a wonderful episode with Sofia Quintero of Nom Nom lately and w about processing and collecting customer feedback. But we didn't intentionally touch on, on that very topic of f figuring out what to do next with it, because it's a whole big topic by itself. So um, I don't even know what question to start with, but what do you think, what's the best practice for a company, uh, for a SaaS company, to start uh, logging feature requests and planning and prioritizing their new features? Yeah, the biggest thing around planning new features is most teams tend to come to prioritizing their roadmap or planning what they're going to build next by starting from the solution. Uh, they come in and they have a list of feature requests they've caught, they've gotten from their users. They may have feature requests that their executives want to build or things that they want to build themselves. And so they end up just filling up a backlog full of a list of features to build without ever really questioning the why. And so When it comes to building features, I really recommend that people kind of take a step back and rather than starting from what are we going to build, start thinking about what problem are we trying to solve? Um, you know, most roadmaps, especially in established companies that have a product already, end up looking like lists of features that then are being prioritized against each other. Uh, instead, kind of take a step back and start from prioritizing the problems first. Mm -hmm. uh One question is, can the product be ever 
uh, you know, in a good shape, so good enough that there is actually no need to build new features. And it's a founder's opinion to keep it as is. I think that people will always ask for more features. They're typically asking <laughs> for it to do different things. Um, a product is never done. I think some mm -hmm. products can be more done than others to where you don't necessarily want to continue to cram in new features, but then your, uh, your roadmap and the things that you build start looking more like refining what you already have. And how do we go really deep in the space that we're in? How do we make sure that we are the number one, that we are meeting the needs of our users in the best way that we possibly can? Mm -hmm. um, what is the best way? Uh, so you've been a product consultant and you probably know that a lot of founders have this uh, problem that they think that building new features uh, can somewhat solve their uh, product market fit problem or marketing problem, which is entirely different angle to do. Uh, so how do we, but it's still very hard to, you know, to slap yourself on the wrist and say that we don't need to do that right now. We'd better look at something more global. Um, but how do, how do we cure from that new feature of fatigue? Yeah, that one's really hard. Uh, and I'm not <laughs> sure anyone has truly solved that yet. Um, uh, the biggest thing I think is to regularly evaluate the features you have in your product and be willing to to pull some of them, to take them out of the product even after they've been in production. Um, I know that there were features in apps that I've run that were never used. I had a feature at one point on my travel app that uh, we discovered at one point was broken and when our developers looked into it, we discovered it had probably been broken for over two months and we hadn't heard a single person complain about it. So that's probably a pretty good sign that no one is using this feature and it's something <laughs> that can be pulled from the app, simplify the user interface, get rid of technical debt that's sitting in the app. Um, so, you know, I would say just really take the time to evaluate what's there. Mm -hmm. So... Let's go back to your initial advice, which which is to go back from, you know, just simply logging and prioritizing features to uh, looking at the bigger picture and planning your product. So how exactly can that be done? Is there any special framework or technique that you recommend to people? Yeah, there are several different prioritization techniques that you can use uh, for evaluating features. Um, the one of the simplest and one of my favorites is the two by two, uh, which can be used for basically anything, but for prioritization, I think it's a nice way to evaluate opportunities against each other. Um, so basically you pick two things that matter to you, whether that's user value and business value, or whether that's, um, you know, user value and time to complete or cost to complete. Um, it can be just, any two parameters that make sense to you and you start ranking features along one axis and then along the other axis and see which features really, uh, really meet the mark on both of those levels. Um, however, a lot of times you have more than two ways that you want to evaluate products or evaluate features. So then you can use things like, uh, scorecard methods, um, C. Todd Lombardo and Bruce McCarthy and Evan Ryan in their book, uh, product roadmaps, uh, they actually go into detail about how you can use a scorecard method for prioritizing features. Um, and it's a great way to evaluate different things. 
Uh, Teresa Torres has an opportunity tree evaluation technique. Um, she posits that you, what we tend to do right now in prioritization is we're trying to evaluate apples and oranges against each other. When we just take a list of features and start trying to prioritize top to bottom from there, um, when they're really not equal things that you're balancing against each other. So, um, so she has a technique that, that tries to help you, um, evaluate opportunities in a little bit different way and then start building the features out based on which opportunity you want to pursue, not what feature you want to build. Um, so there's several methods out there that you can use to prioritize, um, Really, at the end of the day, it's just about trying to find a way to balance all of the different things that you're trying to accomplish. Um, I know, particularly when you're working with a lot of stakeholders, uh, marketing, business development, sales, legal, your technical team, the things that you want to do, um, everyone kind of feels like their priority should be number one. So your your business development team is always going to think, well, we should just prioritize everything that's revenue generating first. Whereas I can cram my app with ads and generate a lot of revenue, but I'm probably going to make my customers really angry and lose some people. And so I'm going to lose out on engagement and on churn. So you have to balance all of the different, um, all the different value propositions against each other and try to find the best mix of features that's going to help you achieve your goals. That example with ads is a little bit too easy because this way one one of them subtracts from the other. And that's not like the most popular case. Mostly you would like to promote all the areas and directions of your product uh, equally. Where does it make sense to focus on just delivering value straight uh, straightforward and maybe caring about monetization later? Or what does it have to do? How do you define what, what department to help if it's a big organization? Yeah, it's I I don't think that it's as simple to say, you know, just just build your user base as big as you can and then monetize. That's what a lot of companies do. That's what a lot of products do. Um and if you have the luxury of doing that, it can be nice, but it can also build a product that becomes hard to monetize later because uh, you haven't built a model around that. Um you know, I, honestly, that that's kind of a, a strategic question that depends on the product and on what the market is um, and how crowded the market is, how they're being funded. You know, if you're a, a bootstrap startup, you may not have the ability to uh, just say, we're going to build our user base and not worry about monetizing it today. Um, so you kind of have to take each individual situation and see what makes sense. Sometimes that requires trade-offs. Sometimes it does require building the thing that is going to fund your operation for a little while and holding off on some of the engagement features um, and then coming back to those a little bit later. Um, I think the important thing is to make sure you have a clear vision of where you're trying to go. So that way you don't end up building yourself into a corner or building things that are actually counter to the philosophy you're trying to build later on. So Emily, Oftentimes, as we see, it boils down to having a consistent strategic vision about the product. And from your experience, what would be the best way to uh, to shape uh, to have it, to shape it, to to keep it consistent as solid grounds for making your product decisions? Yeah, with strategic visions, you really need to have everyone aligned around the same goals, and. 
I think this is often where products and projects in general can get uh, can get off track from the beginning. It either comes from someone up at the top has handed down a directive that gets you know said two or three times all the way down until it reaches the person who's going to build the feature, and then it becomes the CEO wants you to build this feature. Or even if it's a, a strategic goal, everyone's interpreting what that goal is in slightly different ways and not even necessarily realizing that they're, that they're aiming for different things. Um, you know, one of the big things that I always did in consulting was we would start every project with a goals alignment meeting. And that was just about getting everyone who had any part in this project into a room together so that we could talk through what the goals were, have everyone write out individually what they thought the goals were. So the business goals, the product goals, the goals for the engagement in general, and, uh, you know, kind of silently on their own, trying to make sure that we didn't just have everyone agree with the first person that spoke up. And then we would put all of those up on a wall and see where people were aligned, where people were misaligned. Um, occasionally, you would have something completely often left field that nobody realized was a goal for this project that was coming from one of the higher up people who had commissioned the project. Um, and that gave us an environment where we could open up and talk about that and say, is this actually a goal? Is this really important? Because if it is, it might change what we build or it might change the direction that we go. Um, and sometimes the answer was yes. And we would all be able to kind of rally around that and move forward. Other times the answer was, oh, no, that was something that I thought was going to happen. But if that doesn't make sense, then it doesn't need to be on the table. If we had discovered that way further down in the process, it could have been a big bomb that got dropped right in the middle of our project. Um, so getting everyone together, I think, is really important. And then doing that um, goals brainstorming and just basically a, a, an understanding of what I understand our strategic vision to be, what I understand um, our purpose for being here being on your own so that we can uh, eliminate that, you know, that loudest voice in the room syndrome. Absolutely. I love that technique. And it's also necessary to do that, even if it's a small business and there are two or three co-founders, it's still great to get together and talk through certain strategic things that wouldn't really come up in a daily conversation if you don't really address them specifically. Right. I, I know that there have been times where, um, you know, even beyond the executive level or the people that are more removed, I've had times where, you know, my, my marketing director that I worked very, very closely with thought that something was happening inside of a project that wasn't happening. Um, and she was expecting some features to come out that she could then sell and that it was going to work in a certain way. And they were just hidden assumptions that she had had based on different lunch conversations or hallway conversations or things that when she heard the name of the feature we were building thought would naturally be in it. Um, and it took us frankly far too long to get to the point where we realized there was a disconnect in what we were actually building and what she thought we were building. So um, I doing that early on and, and then repeating it, I think several times, you know, it's, 
obviously in a consulting world, you have the benefit of an engagement timeframe where you have a start and a stop. So it gives you some check-in points to be able to do that. Um, but I think for teams that are ongoing, uh, you need to make time to do that, whether that's at the beginning of a new theme on your roadmap or once a quarter or um, some kind of set time frame that gets everyone back together to make sure that you're still aligned on goals, that people who have joined your team are aligned on goals and that they see that everyone else is aligned on them as well. That's a wonderful, wonderful point. How do you make sure that your planned features uh, are documented in an accessible way so that everybody, all the stakeholders, the uh, customer success department who talks to people, they need to know, uh, they need to know what, what, what to tell people. Marketing and sales also need to have a great understanding, just as you said. So how do you make sure people are aligned on what uh, exactly is going to happen within the next uh, time frame in your company? There are a lot of tools out there that you can use. I will say if you uh, have the luxury of not having a remote team, I am a big fan of walls of sticky notes. Uh, I think it's, it's very <laughs> visible. It's, you know, when you put it into a spot where everyone is walking by it every day and they can see what's up next and they can see what's in progress. And not only that, they actually will see you going up and, and actively managing that roadmap. Um, I had my roadmap for Tripcase on a big whiteboard in the middle of our office. Um, and not only could anybody walk up and look at that at any time, which I would see our marketing partners and our uh, business development team do on a regular basis, um, they would also see that we were going up. Uh, we went and evaluated it about every two to three weeks to make sure we still had the right things on the roadmap next. And they could see us moving things around and they could see us looking at stuff and saying, oh, this isn't important anymore. This should get moved down. This other thing's really important. It should get moved up. And it gave them the visual that this roadmap is living and breathing. It is not a, uh, you know, a commitment that we can go and sign in stone and say, yes, this is exactly what's going to be built and when. Um, it, it was very nice for them to, to see the process of managing it, which I think you can kind of lose in a lot of digital tools. Um, we even did have a remote team and I actually had, uh, we had a, a development team in Krakow, Poland, and, um, I had a product manager there who she, like, I would take pictures of the board and she would recreate it in our Poland office. So that way we could have that, you know, that alignment there. Um, outside oh. of that, <laughs> great story. <laughs> yeah. Um, so we started off trying to manage that. Like I would put it into Trello and then she would, you know, kind of take that and manage it from there. Um, but eventually it got to where it, yeah, we just took pictures and, and she would recreate it. Um, but as far as tools that are out there, um, I think that there's, you know, you can go as lightweight as just taking something like Trello, which is completely unopinionated on how anything should be run and build it for what you're looking for. Um, or, you know, then you've got tools like ProdPad that are dedicated road mapping tools that, that let you build out your themes, prioritize things, gather feedback from customers, gather input from your fellow uh, teammates, and, and use all of that to prioritize your roadmap and plan what's coming up next. Um, so I think that there are ways out there that you can communicate that digitally. Um, I... 
I would say I probably, uh, my personal bias is I would, I like to skew towards things that are living rather than, um, Excel spreadsheets or PowerPoints or things that when they get emailed around, start to look more firm and start to look, you know, like, oh yeah, this is the thing. Um, when you're using something like a Trello or a ProdPad, it's, it, the, um, the impermanent nature of it really helps communicate that this roadmap's not done. It's going to keep changing. And the features that are coming up next are going to vary depending on what's going on at the time that they get built. Yes, absolutely. Uh, so having something set in stone is not the feeling that you want to communicate with this tool. <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it's, it's great to hear because almost every product management Every every document, uh, you know, turnaround tool these days or project management tool has their version of the board. So that's something you can really easily do without compli complicating things and going into special software. Right. Any recommendations for uh, for dealing with features after they have been implemented? Because that's a whole different story. Uh, just pulling things off your board and replacing them with new goals isn't the perfect way to do that. There should be a way to evaluate features, to work on their launch, to refine them. And how, what is the best manage way to manage that? Des Trainer from Intercom uh, had a blog post a few years ago that really stuck with me and I have used uh, many times over. So he uh, pitched essentially a tool called a feature audit where you map all of the features in your product by um, how many people are using them and how frequently they're using them. And mm -hmm. you get kind of a scatter plot of the features and you see the things that, um, you know, ideally most of your features are in the top quadrant of all of your users use them and they use them all the time. Um, and, you know, but typically it's more, you've got some features up in that sweet spot and a lot of features down in the, not a lot of people use it or they're not using it very often and they're not using it very often. Um, and essentially kind of what you can do with that is start to get a lay of what are people using your app for? What are they using your product for? Not what are they telling you? Like, what are they actively doing with it? Um, and, you know, so the things that are going well are, are always interesting and you can continue to look at those and see if there are ways you can make it better, but it allows you to see where you need to focus in on. Um, he gives a really good example of features that are used by a lot of, or used by uh, a few people, but very, very frequently. So, you know, you've got something that maybe only, you know, 10% of your users are using, but they're using it every single day. And that gives you um, a, an indicator that there might be a niche need or an underserved market or um, something that your product is hitting that you can that you can capitalize on. So you can either take that and say, okay, you know, we want to, we want to do something in this space a little bit more deeply um, and start to interview those users and understand why they're using this feature in this way or why they're using that feature a lot when everyone else isn't um, and, and get some more information to understand, is that a feature you want to improve and make better for the rest of your user base as well? Is it something that actually only has a usefulness for this one small group, but you can do something really, really great for them and become the leader in that space? Um, 
you know, and just a lot of, a lot of interesting insights you can get out of that data. Um, but then of course it also gives you insights into features that basically no one is using. Um, and with that, you can just then start to evaluate those features and use techniques like the five whys. Um, you know, it, I, no one is using the sharing feature in my app. Why? Well, because they don't know it's there. Why? Because it's buried three screens down. Why? Because we didn't have space <laughs> on the front page. You know, and you can kind of start to dig into <laughs> why is this thing not being used? And then it gives you information that you can use to decide, do we want to grow that feature? Do we want to you know, kill that feature? Do we need to improve it? Um, so I, basically it's, it's kind of, you have to take each feature in your app, understand where it is in the life cycle and how it's being used. And if it's succeeding at what you wanted it to do, um, and then make decisions on, on what to do from there. Um, the biggest thing is, you know, the, the feature audit won't tell you why it won't tell you, uh, you know, what exactly is happening, but it will give you data to see where you should, you know, hone in your efforts and where you should focus um, within your product. There's been this method, um, the saying from Basecamp from a few years ago that they didn't have any any kind of product backlog at all, but only were building the features that were mostly spoken about by the customers. So the most important things would automatically come up. And uh, you've also had an article about on, on a similar topic, which is about uh, squeaky wheels or people who are complaining the most about something, which I think somewhat resonates with it. But it doesn't necessarily mean that these are the most important features to build. So w what is your take there? Yeah, I think that um, building the things that you hear your customers talk about is is a good thing to do if you are proactively going out and talking to customers and not just letting them come to you. Um, a lot of times what happens when you're uh, in companies who are looking at things like that, they're taking those requests in either from their sales team or from their customer success teams. Um, and at that point, you're only listening to the people who either are angry enough to reach out to you and you know put in a service request or have a conversation um, or are are just loud enough that that they'll that they'll you know actively contact you. What you really want to be able to do is find the people who are content with the product, or maybe have fallen off and just don't care anymore. Like why did they fall off? Um, and the more conversations you have with users, you start to hear themes come out. And, and that is a really great thing to do is say, we're going to let our roadmap be driven by the things we hear come out of our users. Um, but it has to be done with people who are not reaching out to you. It has to be done um, by doing a lot of user interviewing, um, a lot of different research techniques, just, just being able to get out there and, um, and talk to customers. If the only way you're taking in those feature requests is from your sales team, you're doing it wrong. Um, because your, your sales team is having conversations from a different angle than you do when you go and talk to somebody in an exploratory user research setting. Um, you know, they're, they're having conversations that are aimed at sales. They're having conversations where they're trying to be able to say yes to a lot of things. Um, and they, they come back with some really valuable insights, but 
a lot of times they haven't dug into the whys. So a, a customer will say, I need X feature. And the that gets reported back as our customers need X feature. Um, not digging into why do they need that? Is there a different way that we could solve that? Is that a need that is just for this customer or is spread over our entire user base? Um, so, so long way to say, yes, I think that that's an interesting way of doing things of, of only building your roadmap based off of what you hear your customers say, um, with the big caveat that you actually have to be proactively talking to customers for that to be successful. That's great advice. Thank you. Thank you, Emily. Uh, one more question about rolling out new features. Um, you've probably worked with a lot of companies and there can be multiple, way, multiple ways of doing that. One is, you know, with a big show. Another is a slowly rolling it out to a dedicated group of users. Do you have any slight preference towards one or the other? Big Bang releases are scary and very, very <laughs> risky for many, many reasons. Um, <laughs> and, uh, you know, I think historically there was always this feeling that we had to have everything lined up, build the full feature, have marketing ready to go, have a campaign ready to push out. And then the second that the, you know, deploy button gets pushed, marketing is starting their activities. Um, and, I think that that is really the wrong way to go about it. Um, I think it's a, a misconception that we have to do marketing the day that a feature is released. Um, first of all, the, the risk in that is, you know, if you've, if you've released a feature and then there's a big bug in it that you didn't discover until it went to production, which I would love to say never happens to me, but it happens to everyone. <laughs> um, all of a sudden you've done this big marketing push on a thing that's not working. Um, so that's extra bad. Um, you know, how many people you release to, I think is, is completely depends on what the feature is, how big it is, how big your product is, how big your user base is. Um, but the biggest thing I would encourage people to think about is, um, you know, you don't have to market things the day that you release them. And once you get, once you kind of get released from that mentality, it opens up so many different options with regards to releasing. Um, that's when you can start doing small iterative releases because, um, you know, a lot of times features will get bundled together or held back because there's not enough here for us to market. Okay, well, we're, we're going to release the feature anyway. And then when there is enough to market, we can go ahead and do that marketing push. Um, but in the meantime, we're going to start getting user feedback. We're going to start seeing how it's behaving in the wild. Um, you know, we're, we're just going to incrementally build on top of that. Um, and of course, as, you know, as I mentioned it, that doing that greatly de-risks the project too, both from, um, a user feedback perspective, as well as a technical perspective, the more code you release at once, the more risky it is. So if you're able to batch that into smaller releases, um, you know, there's, there's less risk of major things going wrong. Any little bugs you find, you can quickly fix and get back in. Um, so I would encourage people to, as, as much as you can, try to separate the marketing push from the technical release. Um, from, and then from there, you can decide, do you do a beta release with a few customers? Um, I like to use, particularly in enterprise organizations um, who, who get very nervous about concepts of MVP or small releases, feeling like it's just going to be a skeleton version of what people actually want. Um, 
beta releases and pilot customers are a great way to get over a lot of those objections and say, it's okay. We're not, you know, we're, we're going to release an MVP, but we're not going to release it to everyone. We're going to release it to five customers or whatever the right number is for your product. Um, so you can do that. You can do kind of a, a, uh, you know, silent release, I guess. I don't really know the right term, but just release it and don't (laughs) tell anybody. Um, You know, just kind of put it out there into the wild and see who discovers it. Um, We did that with a feature and and actually had quite a few people discover a brand new paid feature and pay for it without us ever announcing it, which was a really cool thing to see. Um, (laughs) So there, you know, just... There are a lot of different different ways to do things. It completely depends on what feature you're building, how big it is, how important it, how long it's been yelled for by your customers. Those ones you're going to want to you know put out there, maybe wait a day, make sure it's stabilized, and then announce to everyone that you've done it because they really want to see it. Um, but just use the different release techniques that are out there. Um, don't feel constrained to a single type of release every time you go. Wonderful. That's and that's so liberating, both in terms of single features and also uh, with any new product as well. Uh, so slow rolling launch is way better and calm, calming that <laughs> than the big yes. marketing splash <laughs> with like a bunch of users flowing in into something untested. Yes. So I have a question, you know, to top off our conversation, uh, there are sometimes features that don't necessarily bring amazing value to the users, but serve to delight them and maybe partially to delight the founders as well, (laughs) you know, to make them proud of, of something they built. What do you think? Do these features deserve to be on the roadmap and when is the best time to tackle those? I think delighters are very important within a product, uh, especially in marketplaces where you've got a lot of competition and a lot of, um, a lot of good competition, the delighters can be the difference between someone using your product versus using your competitor's product. Um, now how much time you put into those delighters should, uh, you know, should be equivalent with the amount of delight they're going to bring, or, uh, <laughs> if it can be something they're going to turn into future value, um, you know, Things like that can be as simple as a little Easter egg. Uh, you know, I had in a product one time at when you scrolled to the bottom of an itinerary, there was a little smiley face, and if you tapped it, it would animate. Um, and you know, I mentioned a feature earlier that was so unused. Actually, people tapped that smiley face more than they tapped my feature that was broken for two months that people didn't know. Um, so, like, people really liked that. <laughs> Um, we've had a few different features, uh, a few different kind of delighter type features that were, were built out of hack day projects, um, you know, that were just kind of fun little, um, you know, one that would share a countdown clock to your trip on Instagram. Um, is that the, <laughs> is that the biggest value that, you know, that's ever going to come for a traveler? no. But it was a fun little thing. It took one of our developers, you know, a day to do the basic code. And then we spent another few, you know, couple of days on it just to make it ready for production. Um, but it was something that actually it's still something that gets used quite a bit uh, at, on Instagram of people posting countdowns to their trip. Uh, and that's just a cool, fun little thing. Um, so I think you just have to look at the amount of effort you're spending and, and see what the value is in that. Don't spend 
six months working on something that provides no value, but is just a delighter. But I think it's completely fine to step back and spend, um, you know, a reasonable amount of time within your budget to do something that's just fun and engaging for your product. It gives it character. Wonderful. That's so reassuring to hear that, that it's worth, it's, it's worth our time. Well, thank you, Emily, for uh, sharing your wisdom today. Are there any resources that people can use to get themselves better at the topic of uh, new features and making themselves, you know, confident and positive at, about what they're going to build next? Uh, yeah. So um, I will say I, you know, I, as I mentioned earlier, I work for Mind the Product. Um, we have a lot of content on our blog, uh, mindtheproduct.com. Um, the I mentioned mm -hmm. a book earlier that I think is is really really great. Um, it's Product Roadmaps Relaunched. So I it's it's kind of it was launched this last November, and in my opinion, is kind of the step by step guide in planning a roadmap and thinking about your roadmap. Um, I We'll also say, um, you know, I mentioned the product ProdPad earlier. They have a blog as well that has quite a few articles about evaluating features and, and you know, how to know what to put on your roadmap. Um, so I think they've got some pretty good thought leadership as well. Um, yeah. Wonderful. Thank you for sharing those. Is there anything you would like uh, our listeners uh, to, you know, undertake um, courses, conferences, because I know Mind the Product has a ton of events around the world. You have training and other things. Yeah. Um, so, you know, our two premier conferences are in San Francisco and London. We had San Francisco uh, two weeks ago now. And um, London is coming up in October. Unfortunately, the London conference is completely sold out. Um, but we are launching a, a regional conference in Manchester that will be taking place in February. Mm -hmm. And tickets actually uh, went on sale today. So you can buy tickets for MTP Engage in Manchester. Um, we also have a round of trainings that are coming up around the world. So we've got, I think, 14 cities that are running product management Uh, either product management foundations, which is our 101 class, or product management essentials, our 102 class in September. So uh, check out mindtheproduct.com for that. And um, otherwise, uh, you know, we have 155 as of right now, and I think we're about to add three new cities. So 158 product tank meetups around the world. So these are local wow. meetups. Wow. By <laughs> yes, it's so impressive. Basically, um, if you're in a city, we probably have a mind the product uh, or a product tank meetup. Um, so you can uh, find your city on mindtheproduct.com uh, if you look at, at local meetups. Um, so check yours out. They're built by product managers for product managers. If you're in a city that doesn't have one there's a uh, and want to organize one, there's a link on there to help you uh, to contact us so that you can, we can help you get started. Um, but really just, I would say, connect with your local product community. That's, that's the most important thing you can do. Um, and, and I will say by product community, I actually think of that more broadly of your local tech community. So I know I go to our <laughs> UX meetup and our, the, our kind of local Dallas UX conference. Um, so get out there and meet the other people and share your learnings and learn from others. Wonderful. What about your work personally? Where can people find you online? 
Yeah, you can find me on uh, Twitter at the Daily M, and that's E M. And you can find my writing on mindtheproduct.com. Um, and I think that's basically it. I'm on LinkedIn at the Daily M as well. I don't really do much writing there, but you can see me. All right. Well, Emily, thank you so much for joining us today for the wonderful advice, and I hope it helps our users. All right. Thank you for having me. <laughs> wonderful. Have a great day. All right. You too. <laughs>